You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Today's podcast is part of a mini-series looking at artistic representations of and responses to conflict. In past episodes, we've looked at drawing, painting and photography, among other art forms. But this week, we're focusing on textiles. My guest is Roberta Bacic, a Chilean collector, curator and human rights advocate, now living in Northern Ireland. In 2008, Roberta was involved as guest curator at an exhibition called The Art of Survival, hosted in Derry, Londonderry. The exhibition was focused on different women's experiences of survival, and it was inspired in part by a Peruvian apillera, a form of tapestry which Roberta had brought to a meeting to illustrate how women on both sides of the long-running conflict in Peru during the 1980s and 90s represented their experiences and even used the stories they'd sewn as testimony at the subsequent Truth and Reconciliation Commission. From there, the idea of curating a physical and digital collection of conflict textiles grew. And today, the collection, based at Ulster University, comprises apilleras, quilts and wall hangings from many different parts of the world. These works of art not only depict conflict and its consequences, in many cases they embody the resilience of the people who created them, and they can be read as acts of resistance to fabric forms of storytelling that advocate for justice and promote alternatives to conflict. So these conflict textiles have a lot to teach us about habits of representing and visualizing the consequences of war through sewing and making. And they can also get us thinking about how different art forms help promote and envision peace. As lead curator for the project, Roberta Bacic oversees an incredibly busy program of talks and exhibitions together with several other conflict textile colleagues. So I'm really grateful that she's found time to talk to me today. Roberta, it's lovely to see you. Welcome to the Visualizing War podcast. Hello, Alice. Nice to see you after a couple of years. We had been on email and all this alternative way of communicating, but I can very well remember you when I went to St. Andrews and you were attentively sitting there and looking at the arpilleras that were running between our hands, you know? Yes, I really remember how emotional it was actually touching these arpilleras. We'll come on to that maybe in a minute, but I've just given a very quick overview of the Conflict Textiles project. You're obviously much better placed to introduce it properly. So can you give our listeners a short history of the collection and how it came about? Well, you mentioned how it became very concrete, why it materialised. But in reality, I had collected and acquired a few Chilean arpilleras already during the dictatorship in Chile. What became to me very manifest during my years of working for the Chilean Corporación de Reparación, that's the second truth commission we had, that people really didn't want so much to talk about the events that affected their lives and change it forever, because that had been denounced, that had been brought to court. They wanted to talk about how the social tissue of their identity, integrity as a person, as a family, as a group had changed. And then I realized that the outcome of the Truth Commission, no matter how good it was and how serious the work was, 
did not meet their expectations. Once again, they were used as a channel of information more as a group. And that's not a mistake from the Truth Commission because that's not its mandate. But I had received in my work of taking testimonies of survivors, of relatives and perpetrators, I had captured that they wanted something. It was a player. It was, please do something, change society. It shouldn't happen again. Why do they ask me to reconcile? How can I reconcile the fact that I know the person who came and abducted my two sons? How can I reconcile? Who can have the right to demand that from me, sitting in a comfortable chair? So those things resonated very much to me. I finished my work at the Truth Commission and took on board, take a few years of distance and came to London to work in the archives of the War Resisters International. So that's also very clear, a group of people who really resist the idea of war because there are no heroes, there are only losers if we think about everyday life and society. And the big events in our life are so few, we can count them with one hand or two hands in our, and no more. So with war resistance, it became very prominent to me that there is must be a, a different way of visualizing what has happened to people. And something that could be tactile, that you could feel the time put. It's not a photo, it's time invested, it's touch. We have to eat and dress every day. We protect our children with the cover. So we are used to cloth and cloth as such. And then on top of the stitch, in and out, in and out, think, rethink, refill. And it's not only about thinking, it's about how to express the feeling. If you think in the process of stitching, a person has to think about the event, has to process it, has to select what to show, what the person thinks the other can see, because what I want is the other to respond. I'm not throwing it to the other. It's not a bullet in response to another bullet. It's a, see what they have done to me. What can you do so that this doesn't happen again? So when I came to London, worked in the archives of war resistors and felt that photography and testimony was there and that there was a very big interest in documenting also nonviolent movements. And what do you do in nonviolent movements? Most of the time you have banners, again, textiles. And I had worked with arpilleras. So for personal reasons, I moved to Northern Ireland and I was asked by a Quaker if I could contribute with some activities that would be different to what was going on here, uh, that wouldn't compete with other activities, but would be a bit innovative on how to deal with the troubles in Northern Ireland that are not troubles. It was a war. Mm -hmm. It's a conflict. Trouble is something you have when you can put on your shoes, you know? Mm -hmm. So I came up 
with a colleague walking along the beaches where I get my inspiration, I thought again about the arpilleras and to bringing this materiality and in which the divisions are always less than the commonalities. The divisions are always put by the ones in power. In the piece that you mentioned from Peru, the women who were widowed by one or the other side of the war in Peru felt that they had more in common than indifference. They were widows, they were displaced, they were poor, they had to educate their children, they had to do, so all that was common. So why this division victims of these or victims of that? They were women. And so that refers to that text that, that you mentioned at the beginning, no? yesterday, today, in which they decided to present it to the Truth Commission and to stand in front of the courts to be able to express how life was before the, the war and what life was now after the war for all of them. They did not exclude the other group. And it seemed to me very pertinent for Northern Ireland where the society is divided to look for the commonalities. So sewing is something common to women and the possibility of drawing from an experience that I knew well, in which I could bring something fresh but that would connect it. I wasn't bringing iPods or technology to ladies who live in different places where, well, also 20, 15 years ago, there were not so many, but that is the origins. And then a colleague, Brandon Humber, who is from South Africa and lives here, found it extremely interesting and brought it to, another part of Northern Ireland. I had showed it at a festival of the Catholic community. We brought it to a place that's more Protestant and the mayor of the town saw it and said, Roberta, I want the festival of textiles or International Women's Day. And in our work, you seize the moment. Mm -hmm. You don't do long-term planning for 20 years. Mm -hmm. You seize the moment. She wanted it, it was October. She wanted it in March. So we started collecting pieces from my collection, from other people. And I was told that women in Northern Ireland didn't depict the troubles. I said, I'm sure they do. I started visiting from the word of mouth one and the other, and most of them brought from the cup world, one that they hadn't shown in public. Mm -hmm. And so the first exhibition that you mentioned, the art of survival, international and Irish quills came about. That's a really fascinating history. And you're really drawing attention to the fact that we sometimes assume that we sort of use our eyes only to read and our ears to hear, but that that touch, that that sense is a very important way of reading stories, of engaging with other people's stories and the materiality of these textiles. Also, the process of sewing them is something that can actually bring people together, that can slow down thinking, that can help people process and decide exactly what they want to communicate. Um, and then when you're engaging with these textiles, it's a very intimate kind of engagement. You're able to touch the story that people want you um, to listen to and pay attention to. And it means that you actually pay an awful lot of attention to it. 
Um, so it's fascinating to hear how the conflict textiles collection started. You've mentioned arpilleras a couple of times. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about the tradition of making them. Where and when did it originate? And, and what distinguishes an arpillera from another kind of textile design? The Chilean political arpilleras grew and were born during the dictatorship as a way to testify to embroider their own story. The reality is that they are very distinguishable because they were done on Hessian or on the backing of the potato sacks or of the flour sacks. So the size is relatively small. They are from a flour sack, you can take six or four pieces, depending on the amount of flour. And these pieces were what we call quadros, pictures. And there would be so much to say, but in the first few years, the women depicting in first hand what they were experiencing at the time that there was no way to testify in public. And even if there was a way, they would not listen to marginal women. They were born in the shanty towns of Santiago with no aspiration of being popular, famous or anything, just to do something. If I'm not heard, I have to do something to become an actor in your own life and not a victim. So that is a very important element. And you are not a hero. You are a person. So the collection has more arpilleras than any other kind of textiles that depict a conflict, but has others also. It's the basis. And when you were talking about the collection, the collection exists in several ways. The collection has a material end to it where we have 379 textiles documented so far each with the origins and all the information you want on our website. That's one part, but not all the textiles that are documented we own as property. Mm -hmm. We have facilitated a channel to be exhibited and each piece that is documented with us had at least been once in an exhibition. So if you want to exhibit with us and you offer us a piece about something special, or we have one on Aleppo and Gaza and different conflict, we have to document it and it has to become part of an exhibition. Mm -hmm. As such, we have a big number of pieces that belong to the collection. We are owners and others are on permanent loan and others go back to the owner, but are available. That's the contract. If you want to be part of us, you have to make it available if anybody in another country wants it for an exhibition. Mm -hmm. So that's why the description even tells you where the piece is at a certain time and all the exhibitions have been. The other part to the collection is the online archive that is kept and organized by Ulster University that has created not only the platform, but has also created an ad hoc and specifically generated database that was done five years after we started to accommodate all the needs and the things that we were needing to add. 
because the first exhibition was only added manually, like an annual, you know, all the layers. So really it's quite comprehensive. Um, and then the other element to the collection is that we document every single activity we do as a matter of facilitating this experience to others. So if I am talking to you now, Alice, it mm -hmm. appears in our website like an activity we're doing today. Mm -hmm. From tomorrow is past, but we aim when you have the podcast to put it there and then people beyond your remit will be able to study it not only today, in the future. So it's a collection that exists in multiple forms. You've got some pieces that you own, but there's also this fantastic digital collection that also documents the impact, the journeys that some of these textiles take all around the world. And listeners should really go to um, the Conflict Textiles website, kane.ulster.ac.uk forward slash Conflict Textiles. And there you can search through the database and you can find the story behind every Conflict Textile that's there. And as Roberta says, the location it's currently in, the date it was made, often the name of the maker, not, not always, sometimes they're, they're, they're anonymous. Um, I'm interested, Roberta, that you you mentioned that uh, um, you started uncovering textiles that were being made in Northern Ireland that were able to sort of fit into a collection with Arpilleras. And so it's clear that there's quite a mix of sewing traditions in this collection, dating from the 1980s, well, actually dating from much earlier than that, right through to, to the present day, to 2021. Is that right? We have even pieces from 2021 to be on exhibition in 2022. And it's really a fascinating journey, but over the time to document even in more depth, some pieces we had to resource to memorabilia and other elements to complement. So our oldest piece is from 1905. So we go as far as that in documented things that also are textiles and why people have kept a textile, why a textile from 1905 survived the concentration camp, the emigration, and everything to keep a testimony of a way of living, of a way of spending your time, of a way when you cannot leave a legacy, you can put in the pocket a little napkin or a little tablecloth, thinking that maybe that can survive and it's going to be also less political or possible to destroy. So the collection then has these Chilean arpilleras at its core. That's where it started. But as you say, it's grown and taken in sewing as a form of expression, as a form of storytelling, right from 1905 through to the present day. I was really struck by what you said, that this is often work done by marginalised women who are finding alternative ways of having their voice heard. You just said not political, certainly not overtly political, but in the way that you help to exhibit them and facilitate all these activities and these collaborations and these traveling exhibitions, they become very political and they become powerful because they're sitting alongside each other and they gain lots of power from the sort of accumulation of all these different voices from different communities, different cultures, different times, using sewing to express and express explore the impact of conflict. I just want to mention to listeners that Roberta is kindly allowing us to put together a blog on the Visualising War website, which contains some images of some of the textiles
details that we're going to be talking about. So if you're interested, you can look that up. Um, and that's a good moment, I think, to dive into some specific pieces and really start to look closely at a few of the items in your collection. So I'd like to start, if I may, with an apelliera called Donde están los desaparecidos? Where are the disappeared? Can you tell us a little bit about this conflict textile? How typical is it of arpilleras of its time and what message does it convey? Yes, it's a very central piece to our collection, not only because it was made by Irma and it has a name, or because it's a very typical arpillera for people who will want to see it, will see it's a small square, it's like a picture, it depicts for the women who made them a political sign that the sun shines for everybody and makes no distinction. And it also shows us the other richness of the sewing experience, that it was done individual pieces, but by collective, so the women empowered themselves to take action. And in this piece, the women are in front of the tribunal of the courts asking where the disappeared are. And next to them are two policemen and they simply ignore them. They continue their demonstration. They have a banner that says what you said, where are they disappeared? And they have consciously made the policemen without faces because they are not blaming the individual. They are ignoring the military and the police that caused all their suffering. So it's very multicolor, it's very typical, but also it has the incredible power of showing the colors they use. They use colors of ordinary life, of their clothes, of the little scraps. Everything is handmade, there is nothing on the machine. And it's the idea that they could show that in spite of all, they have very positive things to say. We are together. We can do things for ourselves. Here we are. Deal with us. We exist. And this courage, this voicing is very important and very relevant. For us, it's also important that you chose this piece because at the core of our collection is the topic of the disappeared. It's a topic and it's an issue I have dealt from 1970 on. So it's very cool that we always in our events and conversations call the attention that it, the, the disappearance of people made by individuals is just beyond words. Yeah, as you say, it's it's very striking, the colour and the energy of these women in the foreground of this picture really stands out, as does the sun that's standing up above these sort of lowering court buildings in this sort of slate grey. And I think it really is striking, you know, you've drawn attention to the fact that the women keep looking forward and keep raising their voices and raising their hands, ignoring the soldiers who are, who are walking towards them. There's a menace there in the way the soldiers are walking towards them, but the power the empowerment of these women working together, raising their voice. Um, it's a fantastic performative piece because, of course, it's showing them raising their voice and the, the sewing itself is doing that for them. The power of the collective is very important because Irma is denouncing the disappearance of her son 
who was a very prominent filmmaker and he was abducted with his girlfriend and both disappeared. She was a person, middle class, who joined the other women to claim together. She didn't take a position of privilege to go and do denunciations and look for a different treatment to the other women who had disappeared relatives. So she came to work with them and she used to teach dance and dancing Cueca Sola and all kinds of things. There are films about her life. Her husband died at the age of 95 a couple of months ago. So the whole family has continued the journey through the textiles, but also through performances, to creating music and creating alert, being people alert of what happens and what wishing that it doesn't happen to others like it happened to them. Mm-hmm. And so you, you've mentioned Irma Muller, who chose to work together with other people, not simply raise her voice alone. Do you know at all what she intended this piece to do initially when she sewed it? Did they have a particular audience in mind? Did they have any idea that it was going to be travelling the world and that it would be in exhibitions in the UK, in you know, in all sorts of other places? What, what were her intentions, do you think, and, and the intentions of the collective at the time of crafting it? To be witness, to denounce, to take action, to not to wait for next week, come to register a paper. Now, over the years, they got to know groups of people in solidarity who would have brought them, exported them. I would say up to 1978, it wasn't that difficult to export them until the military discovered the power they had. So then it became you could be low marshaled if you had one or you made one. But nonetheless, the women continued using solidarity channels in which many pieces came to the UK. I have received donations from pieces that were bought here in England in 81, 82, in Christmas fairs. You find it, how can you sell this in a Christmas fair? Mm. But that's a place where you could put to people who don't think about these issues. Uh, And then the person who had it suddenly when they are closing their house, they decide that it cannot be dropped into a charity and they look for a place to give it to. So the collection has also received incredible donations of people who want them to be witness. And this is something very, very relevant that I accentuate. And the collectives of women still exist. It's been extremely relevant to work with a few arpilleristas from those times. And I normally show them in which exhibitions their pieces go. And when academics discuss the topics of the disappearance, they feel extremely happy that they have traveled. Some of them never had them back. Mm -hmm. But the big question is what would they get if they get it back? They want their message to be spread. So they are the wandering messengers. And we as a collection really do lots of maintenance and curatorial Mm -hmm. work so that they are preserved. We get visitors to see them here and see the collection and be able to learn from us how we preserve them. Because our pieces are pristine after 50 years, 60 years, I have pieces that are extremely old, that came very damaged and now are intact. Mm 
because they have been done conservation and they keep their poignant colors and formats. Mm. It's you know, the, the story that we're uncovering here, just with this one textile that we've looked at so far, really speaks to the power of storytelling. You know, it's extraordinary to think about Irma Muller and her collective of women sewing and doing this act that is associated with the domestic setting that actually was sort of done in some ways in a sort of secret, slightly undercover way, bearing witness, as you say, but very powerfully bearing witness and then growing so that, in fact, the military noticed and you know, the ban on exports of these arpilleras came in and now they're being seen and talked about by so many people. And as you say, their ongoing journey around the world is something that their makers presumably want to carry on happening rather than having them back. You mentioned that Irma Muller was a dance teacher and among other things taught the dance La Cueca Sola. And that brings me on to the next piece that I'd like to talk about. Another arpillera from Chile from the 1980s. It's called La Cueca Sola, They Dance Alone. It's sewn again from really colourful cloth. Uh, the colours are deliberately more muted in this one. So the backdrop is plain blue. The flooring is a deep red. And then there are six women dressed in black and white. One of them is playing the guitar, four stand in the background, and one woman is dancing alone at the front. Roberta, could you talk us through this picture just to help us understand what story it's telling? Yeah, it's interesting that you chose this Cueca Sola, another one that was in St. Andrews. It's a Cueca Sola that belongs to Marjorie Agosin and was done many years ago in the 1980s. And it really shows that it's not only the sewing, it's also the dancing. The women who suddenly found themselves alone decided that they had to take action and they wanted to raise the attention in very important dates for Chile. So one important date is Independence Day. So they organized a folk group to create music and to do dancing. That's what you do. But the cueca is a national dance that is related to courting with skirts in multiple colors and a white shirt and very coquettish, you dance it with your partner. And suddenly they re realized that the power of also showing it, not only in the textiles that they could do a performance. So they have this group of musicians. They are all self-taught people. They are not professional. Irma became a teacher of Quaker, but she became a teacher of Quaker by being part of the group, not that she would have been before. And what they did, they turned the skirt that was multicolored into very, very clear black. Mm -hmm. And instead of having a flower on the pocket in, on their hard side, where they usually have a flower from spring in September, we have spring. In, in Latin America, she they put a photograph of the person that they are looking for. So that is very relevant that you get this setting of the women getting prepared to sing and one in front is dancing alone. And if you connect it to the song from Sting, it's what, that's the one called And They Dance Alone, that was Amnesty's song for many years and it mm -hmm. traveled the world. It was based on this performance by these very ordinary everyday women mm -hmm. who 
had taken action and multi-action, not only sewing, not only going to the prisons, not only going to the courts, but also creating this musical group and dancing. Quite often they danced in the streets. They would have danced in front of Pinochet's headquarters and they were aware that they were going to be arrested, but that was a risk that they were willing to go for. Mm-hmm. So the piece is that you chose is very special insofar that it shows really the group of women singing, the one playing the guitar and the one dancing alone. Again, it's amazing to see that in this piece, the women involved, the women behind its making, are harnessing two activities that are often associated with the domestic setting, seemingly innocuous activities, dancing as well as sewing, as acts of resistance and acts of protest. And again, this idea that these sort of small collectives, these small uh, um, activities of these, these small acts of protest, gain momentum, so much so that the musician Sting records a song that's inspired by La Cueca Sola. So it's another really moving piece and very moving, I think, seeing these in the pocket in place of the flower, these silhouettes of these disappeared men representing the thousands of men disappeared under Pinochet's regime. I'd like to talk about quite a lot of textiles if we're able to fit them in. I just want to touch on one more from Chile, if I may. Another one that I found really moving, this one was created by Maria Mendoza in 1990, and it's called Executions in the National Stadium, again, depicting the violent aftermath of the military coup in 1973 and the atrocities that followed as people were rounded up and executed. And it really is a very powerful image. It's in three parts. So in the upper third of the image, we see the beautiful sun that you've already mentioned. That's a regular feature of these apilleras. And we see the mountains of Chile very colorfully picked out in these colorful cloths. The middle third then presents a really brutal contrast. It depicts an execution in the stadium where thousands of people were detained and killed. And then the lower third shows the families of the disappeared waiting outside the stadium in fear and horror and anger. And there's a little boy who's saying, where is daddy? So the thing that strikes me first about this textile is that at first glance, it's really beautiful. The sun grabs your attention. There are fruit trees at the bottom that help to frame it. But the anguish of the people in the center really emerges as you look more closely. What do we know about the maker of this piece and what she was trying to communicate with it? Well, we have to look at the date it was produced. If you go to the archive, it says it was produced in 1990. So it's certainly not a piece produced in the moment of the events. Mm -hmm. It's a reflective piece looking back. And it's important that I mention that this piece, though we have showed twice in different exhibitions, doesn't belong to us, belongs to a small museum in Japan called the Oshima Hako Museum, that in solidarity with the women of Chile acquired a big number of these arpilleras, instead of doing charity, bought for a good reasonable price them, sold many in Japan in solidarity, but also kept a number for documenting. Why is it important? It's because it's 1990. So a Japanese lecturer who had lived for a few years in Chile and to whom they took all the films that he had taken, had taken this back and decided in 1990 to go back to Chile when 
the change came to not a democratic country, but a democratically mm -hmm. elected country. And he met with the women and raised the, the question, what are the things you will never forget? Mm -hmm. So this is what I call an arpillera of second or third generation. It's created on the memories that have installed in yourself and that have tinted you for the rest of your life. It's a bit processed. It's not in the moment. It's what she can remember. It's what she has in her own experience. So she, we have the name of her and all these capacity to show us how it happened and what were the things that people were doing. I don't know Maria Mendoza, so I don't know if she personally was the person asking, where is my dad? That mm -hmm. I don't know. But she knew of these experiences from first hand, though now it's told many years after the military coup. And I think there's a little pocket at the back of this arpillera where there was a note from her which said there in the National Stadium, many friends and compañeros died. And that's why I don't want pardon or forgetfulness. So, again, it's a sort of it's a form of bearing witness, but bearing witness later, ensuring that there isn't forgetfulness. But as you say, also, it's a document of scarring in a sense. It's bearing witness to the ongoing impact that has tinted her and others for the rest of her life. I am really struck by the way in which the three conflict textiles that we've looked at already are reshaping my habits of visualising of violence generally, conflicts generally, but particularly what happened in Chile, really putting families, women, children at the centre, really absolutely putting victims um, at the centre. There are very few images of soldiers themselves, very few images of the people, the perpetrators, um, and the emphasis is very much on the impact, the scarring, the, the loss of life and the grief and the, the wider loss generally. I'd like to turn to uh, another apillera now from Peru, which again puts women front and centre. It's called Viola es un crimen, Rape is a Crime, produced in 2008 by a woman who lived through the civil war in Peru from 1980 to 2000. Roberta, could you describe this piece for our listeners and perhaps tell us what strikes you about it? Again, the collectiveness, this women who traveled many miles to denounce what was happening in another part of the country, this capacity of shaping action, taking action, being poor and impoverished, deciding what is most important of all. If people would be looking at this arpillera, could see that with one little stitch for each eye, every woman has a different kind of face. So they are really captured like in a photography and they have all taken a little rose to bring to the headquarters where they are going to denounce what had happened and that women are being raped when they are being taken prisoners. What is also interesting to see in this piece that they went to a place where they were women working military. So they dress the women in their military uniforms. So they address woman to woman. They are appealing to that part of humanity of a woman to a woman coming with a rose to ask and demand that the women should not be raped. It's a very 
precious piece, very important when you study at present times, like rape as a weapon of war. Mm -hmm. So these women, without any theory or anything, they were experiencing and taking action without taking into account what law was happening and when it was allowed or not allowed. They just took action and went. So it's a remarkable piece that we have extensively shown. And often it's not that we choose it, it's that the people who commission an exhibition find it very central to the analysis they want to have or the discourse or the subject, if it's war studies or if it's peace studies or if it's anthropology and sociology or women's studies. So it's been approached from different disciplines, but also from different perspectives of art. Mm -hmm. And it has been very much discussed by textile artists and they acquired the Chilean and imported the Chilean arpillera tradition being Peru next to Chile. Mm -hmm. So quite a few of these women learned the technique from the Chilean women. So the collection has one was made by a Peruvian woman who came to Chile escaping persecution, learned the technique, went back and then was persecuted, abducted and disappeared mm -hmm. herself. So the bare witness that we have from her is three arpilleras she made while in Chile and brought to Peru back to teach other women. And you've drawn attention to the fact that just individual stitches pick out different individual faces amongst the women. So there's this, that, that there is this impression of individual women as well as collective, which really helps to make it personal, make it hard hitting, make this arpillera really affect you. I think it's fascinating that just above the women, there's what you might more traditionally associate with embroidery. There's sort of these stitched flowers, but the stitched flowers have so little space in, in the arpillera as a whole, because the rest of the arpillera is taken up with telling this dark story, this story, as you say, bearing witness. And it's really the power of ordinary people through depicting and acting to confront prison guards and the system generally, the power of ordinary people to resist, to protest and to call for justice. And you mentioned that this has been of interest to people in war studies and peace studies. And the rape of women is something that matters both during war and during conflict resolution and conflict transformation and peace building, because, of course, it's a crime that you know doesn't stop when it's stopped. It's a crime that carries on resonating and affecting people. And I think that's one of the things that this particular piece really communicates for me, the sort of the ongoing nature of this crime. And the last thing to say about this piece that's quite remarkable, that the flower is held with the two hands and it has a symbol that you only have time to make peace. You are not having one hand the flower and in the other a stone. So it's a very articulate way of approaching the action. Nothing is improvised. Yeah, so really important symbolism there built into the fabric of the piece. So we've talked about the fact that you're based in Northern Ireland and a country which, as you say, has seen an awful lot of conflict. I, I like the fact that you drew attention to the 
the awful euphemism of the word the troubles it's yes it's been war it's been conflict and you've been running exhibitions and workshops there among other places specifically engaging with the conflict that has so affected people in Northern Ireland for decades and you've been giving people the opportunity to create textiles in response so for example through an exhibition called Stitching and Unstitching the Troubles in 2012-2013 and I wonder if it'd be good to talk a little bit about the work that has come out of those exhibitions in Northern Ireland. I've had a look through your collection and I'm struck by the mix. Some of them depict the actual scene of a bombing, for example. Others are much more symbolic and focused on aftermath and recovery. Families and women and children are very visible. That's a striking feature, as I've said, of lots of these conflict textiles, whereas women and children are often less visible in other representations of conflict. And again, quite a few of your Northern Ireland pieces have been made by collectives. So there are quilts of remembrance made by people at the Wave Trauma Centre, for example. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about what people in Northern Ireland have gained from making these pieces collectively as well as individually. Well, I can only give an account of the experience of working with them. The idea that they can describe what they have lived is in itself the most powerful element. You chose one from Northern Ireland done by Wave Trauma Center. That is extremely interesting because I had been working or connected to Wave for many years. And when this piece was made, I realized that the influence of Arpilleras had been very notorious because previous pieces were quilts made with squares and one put next to the other. And suddenly, I was presented with this piece that even though it has the size of a very typical big quilt that could be the cover of a bed, it's incorporated scenes and stations of this, the troubles here in the format of arpilleras and they have been blended together. So there is not such thing like 24, 55 or whatever number of equal squares put together. Each group, each person designed, embroidered. I wasn't involved in the making, but I have been involved in the conversations previous to the start of the project and with the colleagues in bringing to different audiences this piece. So this piece went with me and with one of the workers from WAVE to Guernica Peace Museum in the Basque Country to be displayed together with Chilean arpilleras and arpilleras from Peru, from Argentina and different parts of the world to talk about conflict with textile language. Because for us, textile language is as valid as any other form of discourse. And so we wanted all these voices. It's like languages. You have different languages, you have different techniques. You have quilt, you have wall hangings, you have arpillera, you have embroidered. But if you look at this piece, it has a combination of sewing machine like the quilts and a lot of embroidery and patchwork, patches from scraps like the arpilleras. And on looking at the piece on my right at the bottom is the peace agreement booklet that is hanging as part of a testimony. They are giving a testimony to all what happened. And now by having the booklet there, they want the implementation 
of the peace agreement, mm -hmm. something that has been in the last few months quite complex here in Northern Ireland. So you can see the power and it's in their center, local center that's not far from where I live in the North Coast. It's permanently on display. I have also had it on display at the Ulster Museum. So it's a very versatile representation mm -hmm. of the conflict, but also how the combinations of techniques and possibilities of talking out are blending together. As you say, it's a real meeting of cultures and traditions with elements of traditional quilt making absolutely still there, the individual pictures placed next to each other, but not in quite such a regular format. And as you say, the sewing traditions and the use of colourful cloth and stitching coming in through from the Arbillera tradition. And glad you mentioned the fact that this booklet with the peace agreement is hanging off, because it's almost as if the quilt is saying, look, here is everything that has happened. So many different people's perspectives on the past. And there are images of explosions of coffin, of marches, of fires taking place and it's the, the fact that the book is hanging off this it's almost as like now it's over to you this peace agreement is hanging by a thread and with all of this history visually set out and stitched out sitting behind it asking a huge question I love what you've just said about the textile language as well that's something that's really coming across in all the pieces we're talking about another quilt from your collection that really jumped out at me was one that resonates a lot with some artworks created by a pre previous podcast guest, Rana Ibrahim. Rana is an Iraqi artist who works particularly with collages, so not sewing, but something that's not so dissimilar from quilting and, and patchwork. And she founded the Iraqi Women Art and War Group to help women displaced from Iraq by conflict to process their experiences and build connections in their new communities through making, through artwork. A lot of their art focuses on the ordinary domestic objects that they've left behind. So it has some really interesting overlaps with a conflict textile in your collection called The House We Had to Leave, which I think was stitched by a group of refugees, women refugees from Croatia in 1995. Can you just talk our listeners through this piece? Yeah, this piece belongs to the Women's Museum in Germany. And the colleagues have been extremely good at collecting pieces from groups in Europe that have lived especially connected to the Balkans and all the conflict there. So it's the idea that you represent not only the horror that you live, it's also what you have to leave behind. And that is quite hard because it has to do with the decisions you make when you have to go. What are the things you will take with you? What are the things you have to leave behind? We have worked quite a bit here with refugees that have come to Northern Ireland. And this sense after they survive, they start missing what they left behind. Mm -hmm. So this piece is very, very much into that. You escape, you survive, but then you have the void of what you have to leave behind. And that might have been important to you. There are in this moment quite a few projects, very interesting with the expatriates from Colombia living in London and in Ireland, documenting little belongings that they brought with them. Mm -hmm. What are the things you managed to bring with you that you decide that in your 20 kilos you will include, knowing that you leave so many behind? 
So that appeals to the same idea of that very interesting quilt, you know, what do we leave behind? We leave the home, we leave the objects, and we leave the memories. And we leave because every object belongs to a grandmother, to a friend, and all of that has to be left behind. Mm -hmm. And so it's captured in, in sewing, it's captured in a textile, um, and it's bearing witness to a different kind of loss from the traditional apilleras from Chile, but a profound kind of loss nonetheless. I'm struck by the fact that in this one, the sun is peeping in, but only partially peeping in. Is that, mm -hmm. do you think, a deliberate reference to the Chilean apilleras, where the sun is usually fully visible and quite a statement of resilience as much as anything? At the end of the day, very many women might have come across Arpilleras because of the date it was made. Gabi Franger, who founded the Women's Museum in Germany, lived in Peru many years, so she had already Chilean Arpilleras, so it might well have influenced this idea mm -hmm. that you also subvert the cliché that sun is beautiful, nice, and summer, and holiday. Yeah, absolutely. And also the a political concept. And nowadays the sun is asking you fear because it can get so hot that you can die, mm -hmm. you know? So it's the subversion also, uh, finding new ways to depict and embody your message mm -hmm. in the quotidian, the impact in your life. Yeah, and there's a lot of subversion in all of the pieces we've talked about because they do, as we've said, they look aesthetically beautiful, colourful, initially cheerful, but their content is dark and absolutely subverting that initial sense of colour and cheer. I was really struck by some testimony about the process of making which I read in connection with a really different piece created actually in 2019, so quite recently, by a young ex-combatant of the demobilised guerrilla group FARC, he took part in a project called Unstitching Gazes, and the name alone resonates a lot with what we're interested in in the Visualising World project, because it speaks to the idea that looking differently at things can help reconfigure the world around us. So this project gave ex-combatants the chance to reflect on the transformation process they were undergoing, and he wrote about his work. He said, when I'm embroidering, I concentrate. There's even a moment when I don't think about anything. I focus on the stitches, that I do them well. And it's like a good feeling, as in one way or another, with each stitch, it's like letting go of those burdens that one carries. I wonder if you can describe the piece to us and talk about how it has impacted you. Well, I would say it's a piece that the best person to describe it would be the colleagues who worked in the project, Betty Blisseman and Beatrice in Colombia. But... I will try my best because I know it quite well. And we did a film where it appears very central, where he, at the end of the day, uses his name, Edwin, and says he is an ex-combatant and tries to say that he is a man like any other person. So the fact that he was a fart person doesn't make him not be a person. He's not a monster. He points out that it's people who love, and many people engaged in armed struggle because they wanted peace. Mm -hmm. Quite often we think that with one war, we will end the other war. We don't think on the consequences. So it's very moving that he puts himself like an ordinary man. Mm -hmm. feeling, And it's also interesting that he's a man. 
And you have to understand that most combatant men are very good at sewing because when they are in the battle zone or when they are in hiding in the mountains, they have to deal with their uniforms or with anything they have, their rucksacks and everything. So they are very good at sewing. You can mm -hmm. see that the stitches are very perfect. So it, it breaks the stigma that sewing is only an activity of women. What is also interesting on the photograph that we have on the website that was facilitated to us by the colleagues is that it has a bit of, it's stained and it shows that it was probably used in a table where there was bread and butter or something. So it makes it even more daily thing, more mundane that it was not done in an art room or in a workshop room. It was done on a table wherever you could at the time. So it's a big reminder that behind each of these people there is a wish to become or live like an ordinary person. Mm -hmm. There's this heart that's sort of throbbing in the upper corner, upper right-hand corner of the picture. It says we, the group FARC, are people who love and feel like everybody. And the word everybody is in capital letters with his name Edwin. But it's also interesting the color he uses. It's a very, very common use of a uniform of military. It's this olive green. A very artful piece of work, I think very valuable and very much reminding us that the conflict is always fought by individuals. Yeah, and there's this heart throbbing in the upper right-hand corner as well. And it's not a cliched kind of cartoon heart in the sort of shape that we're oh. used to, but it's an anatomical heart. Um, and, and I think the idea is that all human beings have a heart. And I think you know he talked a little bit about the fact that he often hears that ex-combatants, that gorillas are monsters, demons, but he's chosen to put that heart there because it's a symbol of life. It's the organ of life, um, but it also sort of connects that um, essential humanness between all of us yeah so quite a lot of the pieces in the conflict textiles collection reflect very personal experiences sometimes from many years previously one really striking example of this is a piece called my guernica stitched in 2017 by a woman whose family so past generations suffered when the german air force bombed guernica in 1937 and she's used an old family pillowcase so a family heirloom is backing but interestingly, rather than depicting simply what happened, she's reworked Picasso's Guernica. And I'm interested in this because it reminds us that prior representations of conflict always hover in the background of our own attempts to narrate it. So that prompts me to ask a little bit about the patterns that you have found in, conflict, in the conflict textiles collection that you've got. Do you see recurring tropes? Do you see recurring patterns? And do you also see conflict textiles that try really hard to avoid certain habits of representation or to rewrite and rework dominant habits of visualizing conflict? That would give us for a full seminar. <laughs> a seminar on semiotics and quite a bit of interesting analysis. But in general, I would say when you have something that burns so much in yourself, you don't have time but to show what you need to show. So it's that bareness of wanting to be witness of what happened to you and engaging at the personal level to human to human. 
So in this Guernica, that's extremely moving because it was made while I was running Arpillera workshops. But this lady who made this piece could not go because she was looking after her very old mother who was uh, in a care home and she would have gone every afternoon to accompany her. And she would repeat and repeat the story of the day because she had Alzheimer's. And so she would again and again repeat the same story that she had heard all her life because they were there when the bombing happened. And because of the illness, she didn't have, or the condition, she didn't have a memory of the present, but she had always repeating the past. So the way Edurne dealt with it was to bring the image of Picasso to her mind. She didn't work with Picasso's picture in front of her. She had it in her mind and as her mother told the story, she did a few of the representations of the original Guernica, and she calls it my Guernica. It's my version. So she uses the same colors. She uses quite a few other elements, but she adds something that's not in the original Guernica. She adds this date from 1937, to 2017, the year that the mother died. Mm -hmm. So how the war tinted the whole life of the family of this lady, that even in the last months before dying, she still could live the horror of that day of the bombing, where the whole house was shaking and the objects falling and breaking. And she's really gone to an original piece of artwork by Picasso that captures horror generally and is a sort of is a shorthand almost for the horror of conflict. Um, and, and then she's updated it and personalised it in this wonderful way. I wonder if we could talk about um, just one more example of someone recently um, adding a new arpillera to your collection. So I'm thinking of one by Saba Obido, uh, made in 2020. And she made this in response, again, not to an exhibition that she was actually able to attend in person. It was an exhibition she saw during lockdown of conflict textiles. Uh, Saba is a refugee from Syria, and this arpillera was a chance for her to explore and process her experiences of conflict and displacement, and, and to raise a really important question. So the piece depicts scenes of peaceful demonstration, which Saba herself witnessed in 2011 in Syria, which ultimately triggered the long running civil war. And she uses a bright, cheerful image. The sun actually has a smile on its face, showing women waving banners in both English and Arabic, calling for freedom. But her aim, I think, as she's explained it, is to ask, how did those peaceful protests and that call for freedom result in so much ongoing conflict and displacement? So Saba was clearly inspired by other arpilleras to make this. What, what does it add to your collection as a whole to have a new piece like this on the Syria conflict? complementing this expanding collection from all around the world? Well, it was very moving. It was an exhibition I did online with colleagues from Newcastle University. And the colleague, Karen Corrigan, was absolutely adamant to run some online guided tours to the exhibition, and then to try to do some workshops. And because it was in association with Refugee Week, we decided to invite 
refugees, because it's not to talk about the refugees, it's trying to reach out to refugees. So we had quite a good number of people who responded. And this one is especially remarkable in the fact that she felt very well represented with the Chilean Arpillera technique. So she could just from seeing pieces, they talk to herself, but we also provided templates with how to make the little dolls. And for the first time, we had the templates in English, Spanish, Irish, Arabic, and a couple of other languages. So we really reached out to the refugees. It was us going to them more than we asking them to come to us and offer them this space to tell their stories. Now, a few of them came back to us to give us the pieces, but others have kept the pieces for themselves, which is absolutely okay. And this piece has had a very special story because I met online, I have never met Shaba, and I asked her if she would be okay that we portray this piece at a festival we had from the 1st of October until the 7th of November in the Yorkshire area. So we had it online, but we also took selected a few pieces and this was one of the selected. And then we had refugee people from that part also coming and identifying themselves with people who were nonviolent strugglers who wanted to renew life in a different way and be free in their own countries and had to flee. That's why she also uses English and Arabic in the little banner she did, which is very creative because nobody assisted her in how to make it. She got a few hints on how to make the dolls and she got two guided tours. That's all what she got. The potential to tell the story is so big mm -hmm. that the women are looking for ways to express themselves. And it's the materiality of how she could say that. So it's a very precious piece for mm -hmm. us in the collection. Yeah, you know, it's really extraordinary to see the diaspora, I suppose, of the Arpilleras as this form of storytelling, this very material form of storytelling that is inspiring and attracting so many people to tell their own stories of very different conflicts. I know that you've got pieces in your collection from India, from Zimbabwe, from so many different parts of the world, from, as we've said, from all sorts of different time periods as well, right up to the present day. And these Arpilleras, these wall hangings, these quilts are doing all sorts of different kinds of work. Some are asking these really big questions like how did a peace protest turn to civil war some of them are very much more activist I know you've got pieces in your collection for example that are really protesting against drone warfare there's one piece that says it's no expletive computer game and is a very very powerful piece not just about drone warfare but about gaming war gaming generally and it's just wonderful to hear how far all these arpilleras have reached, how far the work that you've done through your exhibitions has reached, and the way in which this form of storytelling, this way of visualising conflict and its impacts is spreading and gaining momentum and continuing to empower women in particular, but all sorts of people. Roberta, are there any final pieces you want to draw attention to or any final things that you want to say about the Conflict Textiles Collection? that we have new pieces and also a, a very remarkable piece from Chile made in 2020 that is related to the ongoing 
upheavals that we are having in Chile. So the struggle and this language that was learned by the artilleristas in the 70s is being kept to use it in the present day in which they represent elements of the struggles today. So I think the importance of being able to adapt it to the certain moment that we are living is what makes it most important. In this moment also, we have quite a few people doing PhDs on the arpilleras, on the arpilleras as the potential in the use of images, as archival material, as testimonies, but there are ways of rebuilding collectives. So that is also very important. They have taught us that you can build community and you can build a collective. And the language of textiles, as you put it earlier, crossing all sorts of boundaries, crossing cultures, crossing time. And as you say, bringing people together We've only been able to touch on a few conflict textiles, but from the sample that we've seen, some really striking patterns emerge. There is, these arpilleras don't depict the perpetrators. They don't depict war per se. What they are is images of what war does to other people and the impact of war on individual people's identity, the social fabric, the ongoing resonance, the impact on people's memories, like in the My Guernica piece. And textile practices as a form of healing, making as a form of processing and this idea also that the power of these pieces to speak to other people we see women activists standing together and these pieces are inviting us to take a stand too so they're not simply inert representations of activism but they're calls to grassroots activism Roberta, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. It's been really fascinating hearing about the Conflict Textiles exhibition, these really powerful pieces that stretch our visualisation of conflict and its consequences and the ways in which it affects so many different people and the ways in which those people find voices through material, through textile and sewing to express what's happened. Thank you, Alice, for having us. And just a last remark that we didn't mention that these pieces have been so versatile. They can be shown in a street, in an action. They can be seen in a community center and they have been part of the VNA and the Tate Modern. So they are so versatile that they are really capable of confronting the so-called pure art. Mm -hmm. They are accepted as they are. They are not transformed. They are brought in as an example of the exhibition that was called Disobedient Objects, and it's called The Arpillera was the first disobedient object in a generation. So very interesting way to end the podcast. And who knows where these discussions will take us in the future. Roberta, it's really interesting that you've just drawn attention to that fact that these arpilleras, these different forms of textile, can at the same time be very, very humble pieces. They might be used as a tablecloth, like that piece we talked about by the ex-combatant from FARC, but at the same time they can become these huge, hard-hitting exhibitions that might find their way into the Tate or into art galleries where more traditional forms of war art is usually seen. So thank you very much, Roberta, for talking us through some of your collection. As I've said, Listeners can look at some of these pieces through the blog on the Visualising War website and also through the Conflict Textiles website. If you just Google Conflict Textiles and Ulster, you'll find it very easily. 
Thank you to our listeners for joining us again. Next week, we'll be continuing our mini series looking at artistic responses to and interventions in conflict. My guests will be three researchers from the Art of Peace project based at the universities of Manchester and Durham. As we'll hear, they've been exploring arts-based approaches to peacemaking and the role that grassroots arts projects can play in helping communities process and recover from conflict. So there are lots of overlaps with what we've been talking about today. And I very much hope you can join us for that. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafia Girton. Thank you for listening.